0: Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Mary Kate McGowan. Mary Kate is the Margaret Capp Distinguished Alumna Professor of Philosophy at Wellesley College. She works primarily in metaphysics, philosophy of language, feminist philosophy, and philosophy of law. Our new book is titled Just Words on Speech and Hidden Harm. It's recently been published by Oxford University Press. We're all familiar with the ways in which speech can cause harm. For example, speech can incite wrongful acts. And I suppose we're also familiar with contexts in which a person who occupies a position of authority can harm others simply by speaking, as when a boss announces and thereby institutes a discriminatory office policy. In cases like that, the announcement is itself a harm in addition to the harm that the instituted policy causes. That is, the boss's announcement constitutes a harm does not, and does not only cause harm. Once we've seen the ways in which authoritative speech can constitute harm, we might look for other mechanisms than speaker authority by means of which speech can be constitutively harmful. Now, in her new book, Mary-Kate McGowan identifies a previously overlooked mechanism by which speech can be harm. On her analysis, one needn't be positioned in an authoritative role to, in, to speak in ways that constitute harm. Rather, everyday communicative acts can constitute and not simply cause harm. So there's a lot to talk about as there normally is. But let's begin with our guest. Hello, Mary-Kate.
1: Hello, Bob. How are you?
0: I'm good. How are you today?
1: Very well, thank
0: you. Well, thanks Happy for to joining the program. Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I teach at Wellesley College, where I was also an undergraduate in philosophy and mathematics. I grew up nearby uh, in the New Bedford area of Massachusetts, and I always thought philosophically, so much so that I think I might have been a bit of an irritant to my teachers prior to getting to college, where uh, they enjoyed and appreciated uh, people who think a bit too much. So um, I think I was always inclined to think philosophically, but it wasn't until I got to college when I was exposed to uh, the discipline of philosophy. Um, And I didn't think of going into the profession. It just never occurred to me that that was something that I could do. I think I thought that you had to be born into an academic family to become a professor or something like that. But uh, my professors here at Wellesley encouraged me to do it, and I did, and I haven't looked back.
0: So that's fabulous. And am, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> uh, am I right? To, you, you did your, your graduate work at Princeton. Is that right? That's right.
1: Yep. Yep. Uh, I worked with David at Princeton and um, after Princeton, I was at Duke for a year and then I taught at the university of Maryland, Baltimore County for two years. And then a position opened up at Wellesley and I crossed my fingers and threw my hat in the ring and, Got the job, so I got to move back to Massachusetts and teach where I was an undergraduate, which is wonderful. Uh, really fun.
0: Well, that's fantastic. Um, so, um, uh, your book is titled Just Words, um, and uh, it begins uh, with a very helpful uh, chapter, m- maybe more than just a, the the initial chapter, uh, that gives readers. Um, a uh, kind of uh, pretty detailed and very helpful, I should add, background in your approach to philosophy of language. And maybe this would be a good place for us to begin our conversation. Um, so your book opens with this chapter that lays out this general approach, um, one that emphasizes communication, what sometimes we call the pragmatics of communication, and um, can you tell us a little bit about how that approach works and what the conceptual tools are that it uh, provides us with?
1: Sure, there are two things I'm trying to do in that first chapter, um, and one is to dispel some um, misconceptions about how language works and how language use works. Um, I think these misconceptions um, aren't aren't prevalent in the philosophy of language so much as in in the broader community when People talk about free speech issues, for example. I think people sometimes are working with a naive view of how language works. So let me just say a little bit about those two misconceptions, and then I'll I'll say other things that I'm trying to do in that first chapter. Great. So one one misconception I think that is pretty widespread is what I call the decoding picture of language. So, uh, you know, when you were a little kid and you have a can to your head and a string to another can and your friend is somewhere else in the tree and you're trying to uh, send messages to each other. Um, You might think that what you're doing is you've got some message you want to get to your friend and you encode that message. And then your friend looks at the code and decodes the code and accesses the thing you wanted to get to your friend, right? So on that picture of language, what we do when we say things, is we say exactly what we're trying to get across. Does that make sense? Like the decoding picture of language. So what you do is you literally explicitly say the thing you're trying to communicate. Well, it turns out that's not at all what we do. What we do is we say something that enables the hearer to figure out what we mean by what we say, given the meaning of what we say and all sorts of background assumptions and, um, background knowledge and the ability to infer and what's relevant and so on and so forth. So what what we do when we communicate is uh, when we say things, we're kind of giving our interlocutor a big clue about what we mean to get across, but we're not actually literally explicitly saying what we mean to get across. Um, <clears throat> our interlocutors have to figure out, and we do this very quickly uh, without thinking about it a whole lot. So, for example, if my friend Peter has been irritable lately and our mutual friend John says, you know, what's going on with Peter? And I say, divorce is stressful. When I say that, uh, my my friend is taking me to saying, well, Peter's stressed because Peter's going through a divorce right now. That explains his behavior. I didn't literally say all those things. I just said divorce is stressful. But he was able to infer what I meant by what I said. So the one thing I wanted to stress is that language use is really highly inferential. When you communicate things, you're not saying what you mean, you're saying something else that enables the interlocutor to figure out what you mean. So that's that's the first bit that I wanted to stress is that um, there's a lot of inferring going on, very complicated inferring going on.
0: And does that also, is that also help to explain how irony and sarcasm and these kinds of things Absolutely. work?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another thing is that sometimes people think that the point, and even philosophers of language in the past, thought that the point of of using language was to make true or false claims about the world. So prior to Austin, I'll talk about him in just a second. Uh, philosophers of language were primarily concerned with uh, the truth conditions of utterances. And although philosophers knew that, you know, sometimes we say things like, "Oh crap." Uh, and that serves a purpose, philosophers of language weren't really interested in those sorts of language uses. They only focused on um, uses of language where the aim was to make a claim, a factual claim about the world. And so the philosophers of language were primarily concerned with the content of what's said, um, uh, with propositions or claims and truth conditions. And Austin comes along and he points out there's so much more to language use. We're not just making claims about the world. Sometimes we're performing actions, we're doing things, we're enacting law, we're undertaking obligations. Uh, So consider an apology. When I say I'm sorry, honey, I didn't mean to do that, I'm not describing some state of affairs, or I'm not primarily describing some state of affairs. I'm actually apologizing. The I apologize saying those words constitutes the action of apologizing. So one of the things that Austin stressed, and he was focused on sort of formal ceremonial, institutionalized examples of utterances that constitute actions, like enacting a law or naming a ship or marrying people at a marriage ceremony. Um, When when we use language, uh, we're performing actions like all the time. when I say it's, you know, I'm going to have fun today, or uh, I I enjoyed the party, um, I'm not just making a factual claim about my, you know, enjoyment state. I'm doing that, but I'm also committing to the truth of what I said, which is an action. So when when you use language, you're doing lots of things simultaneously. You're um, committing to the content of what you say, and probably also committing to the content of what's reasonably inferred that you meant by what you said. And you're also describing, judging, asserting, doing a lot of things when you speak. Language use language is complicated. And, and so the other thing I was trying to do in that first chapter was to be explicit about my starting point. One of the things that drives me crazy is when people talk past each other, when you know uh, they think they disagree, but really they're not, Starting in the same place, or they're not defining terms the same way, or they're working in different frameworks. So I tried to be as explicit as possible about what my starting points were, and so that's part of why I um, took the time to try to spell out my the framework that I'm working in uh, for understanding how language works. And it's roughly a, a I call it neo Gricean. It works within the framework of H. Paul Grice's uh, theory of communication and there are other frameworks and other frameworks that might be just as good for identifying the phenomena that interest me um, but I was raised in this framework so I work within this framework so I just thought I'd put that on the table at the outset. I was also hoping that the book would be accessible to people who aren't philosophers of language or who aren't even philosophers. I don't know how successful I was. Some of my relatives have been reading the book lately, and <laughs> they claim it's a, a bit of a slow read. My uncle actually had a dictionary by his side as he—he's eighty-something. Uh, he read the read the book, but my aim was to um, to write an accessible book.
0: Right? Can you tell us just a little bit, very generally, though, about um, how the Gricean framework works? Which is, as you even put it, you know, it's a theory of. Communication and it's really focused on these sort of conversational uh, uh, um, uh, contexts where language is being used.
1: Sure. Um, so when we communicate, we have an intention, uh, a communicative intention, and communicative intentions are complex intentions. So it's not. So if I tell you, um, I'm from I'm from France. I'm not from France. Um or I tell you I'm from Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when I do that, I intend for you to recognize that I'm telling you that I'm from Massachusetts. And I intend for you to recognize that intention. So with communicative intentions, you have an intention to get something across, but you also want to get that thing across by the person recognizing that very intention. So let me give an example where that meta intention is absent. Suppose I wanted someone to think I was wealthy and so I you know, I I talked a certain way or I mention spending time at yacht clubs or what have you. Um, I might intend for the person to believe that I'm wealthy, but I don't want them to recognize that I want them to believe that I'm wealthy. Right. Right. But when we use language, we do. We we want the person to recognize our our intention to get something across. And in fact that's how they recognize it is by recognizing that intention. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Okay.
1: (laughs) Good. So communication is, is comp the communicative intentions are fairly complex. And, uh, back to the, why is Peter irritable example? When I said divorce is stressful, I intended to get across the claim that divorce is stressful, but I also intended to get across the claim that Peter is stressed because Peter's getting divorced and that's why he's behaving that way. And so um, I managed to get that across because my interlocutor recognizes that I intend to get that across. And that's how I managed to communicate it.
0: Right. Uh, You're helping me see now that um, uh, a lot of what's funny in Lewis Carroll has to do with Mm -hmm. violations of... Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of jokes play with these uh, expectations. Of relevance, or yeah, a lot of a lot of humor. I think is very philosophy of languagey. y
0: <laughs> excellent, excellent. So um, that's all very helpful. Um, so central to the book uh, and to the argument of the book uh, is the idea of an exerisitive, which is a particular kind of um, speech act, um, and uh, the new mechanism that you identify by which speech can constitute harm is, you know, as you describe it, a new kind of, but even a more common and prevalent kind of, exorcitive. So um, maybe we can sort of start to, to get into the central, you know, the core argument of the book. Um, let me just ask you, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what a standard exorcitive is and then uh, help us to see, um, you know, what these, you um, uh, Non-standard, but you call them conversational exercitives Are
1: so the term exercitive comes from Austin and his book How to Do Things with Words. That was really a, a, a series of lectures that he gave, and it was turned into a book posthumously. Um, and uh, he offered a taxonomy of speech acts in that book, but that taxonomy isn't uh, isn't the dominant one in linguistics or philosophy and language, but in, um, in sort of feminist applied philosophy of language, we still use, uh, some of Austin's terms. Um, and I think they're helpful. So, uh, an exorcitive speech act is, uh, a speech act. It's an authoritative speech act, which means that the speaker has to have and be exercising authority over some realm. And a speech act is exorcitive when it, as I put it, enacts facts about what's permissible in that realm. So, if a parent says to her child, "You know, from now on, your bedtime is 8:30," uh, it's a case of saying so makes it so. The speaker has and is exercising the authority to enact the bedtime. And uh, when the parent says that, so long as the speech is successful, um, there is a new bedtime. So, um, standard uh are authoritative speech acts that. Um, enact permissibility facts in the realm over which the speaker has some special kind of authority. Um, I think that our utterances enact permissibility facts without speakers having authority and without us being very aware of them doing that. Uh, for often, an executive was a kind of speech act and it's, it was something that speakers were intending to do. Like when you intend to apologize, you intend to enact a bedtime. But I think that um, the kind of exorcist that I'm interested in isn't really a kind of speech act. It's too ubiquitous to be a kind of speech act. I think it's just um, it's it's our our utterances are constantly enacting permissibility facts uh, without us uh, really being aware of it. So to explain that, I should back up a little bit and talk about conversation, okay? Sure, yeah. Um, So when you have a conversation, you're involved in a a cooperative activity with someone, and philosophers of language and linguists um, have a way of keeping track of the conversational context. Um, The context just tracks everything that's relevant uh, to the conversation, so who's participating, what the topics are, um, what the standards of accuracy are, um what's relevant um uh, whose turn it is whatever's whatever uh has happened so far in the conversation that could influence uh how it ought to go going forward would be tracked. um I work within the score framework, and the score is just tracking all of the relevant facts so Since conversations are norm-governed activities, and that just means that when you're in a conversation, there are some constraints on what you can say that's appropriate. You ought to be somewhat relevant. Uh, You should speak the same language as the person you're talking to. You should be cooperative in the sense that, in the minimal sense, that what you say should enable your interlocutor to figure out what you mean by what you say. And if you're not doing that, then uh, you're not being a cooperative participant. Um, so what I noticed is that when you add to a conversation, you automatically enact changes to the score because the fact that I spoke, you know, enacts the fact that I spoke. And when I say something, I might change um, the topic some or um, the example I like to use, suppose that you and I are talking about our dog. And do you have a dog, Bob?
0: <laughs> I don't.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, too bad. My, wa- so my wife wishes that dog. we did. Okay, well, let's pretend you had a dog. Good. <laughs> let's pretend you had a dog named Fido, and we're talking about Fido. And at a certain point, I bring up my childhood dog, and I say, you know, when I was a kid, we had a dog named Finbar, and he was really hyperactive, and unfortunately, we had to get rid of the dog. Now, when I brought up Finbar, I made Finbar the most salient dog in the context of this conversation. Prior to saying what I said, uh, Fido was the dog we were talking about. And because Fido was the dog we were talking about, when you use the expression the dog, it refers to Fido. But as soon as I bring up Finbar, Finbar is the most conversationally salient dog. And so that has, um, that has consequences for the appropriate use of the, of the expression the dog. By making Finbar the most salient dog, I've changed the right way to use the expression, "the dog. So even though I wasn't intending, I wasn't thinking I'm going to exercise my authority as a conversational participant to enact a new permissibility fact for the proper use of the definite description of a dog, I wasn't doing anything like that. I was just talking about my dog. But by contributing to the conversation, I enact a bunch of score changes. And those score changes affect, given that conversation is a norm government activity, affect, you know, slightly change uh, what's appropriate going forward. So I call this phenomenon conversational adversative, because when you contribute to a conversation, you enact a score change, given that there are norms, I call them G norms, there are norms governing conversation, changing the score uh, changes many permissibility facts for that particular conversation to which you contributed. So because what's appropriate at any point in a conversation is going to depend on the norms governing the conversation or what's happened so far, by contributing, you've changed what's happened so far. And that, in subtle ways, affects what can happen next. So and and so um, we are enacting permissibility facts for conversations, I think, without having authority, without being conscious. Uh, are explicitly conscious of doing it and without expressing or communicating the content of the permissibility fact we're enacting, which is very unlike the standard exertative.
0: Right. I see. And, and even in this, uh, in this case with the dogs, it is not, um, it doesn't seem to follow the the, the standard Austinian, you know, uh, sort of uh, example where uh, you're, you're declaring, you know, you're, na- you're baptizing a ship, you're doing some very uh, official kind of thing. Um uh, I see um so th- the the argument then generalizes though, right you say that um once you see this point that um there are exertives that don't follow this sort of standard exertive model, there are these conversational exertives. um you say well th- th- this phenomena um generalizes, and there are uh, all kinds of ways in which um by speaking we 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 exercise uh something you call these covert exertives. Can you tell us about the expanded phenomenon?
1: Sure. So um, in the case of conversation, uh, you can see that what's doing the work uh, is that the the practice, the conversational practice, is a norm-governed practice. So when you say something in a conversation, you're contributing to it, you're making a move in it, uh, you're adding to it, and that enacts Uh, changes to the score. And because there are these G norms governing conversations, you're, as a result of that, uh, enacting these mini conversation-specific norms. But what's doing the work are the G norms, the the norms governing conversation. And it occurred to me that uh, conversations aren't the only practices that are norm-governed. Social interactions are also norm-governed practices where, you know, there are these, they might be, uh, the rules governing them may be more or less strict. They might uh, vary from context to context, from culture to time. But there are, you know, social norms governing our interactions with one another. And when we say things, we're not just contributing to the conversation. We, we're also doing that. And in virtue of doing that, we're enacting conversationally specific, I call them S-norms. But when we say things, we're also uh, having a social interaction. We're also contributing to a social interaction. And so we're enacting score changes to the score for that social interaction. And since it's governed by norms, you're thereby enacting many permissibility facts, I call them s norms for that particular social interaction. So, um, so it's not just that our utterances change what's conversationally permissible. Our utterance also affects what's Sort of socially permissible in the micro context in which you're participating.
0: Can you give? um, I I know that the the um, the latter chapters of the book go through some um, very specific examples uh, where this um, analysis of covert exertives produces um, uh, surprising and novel uh, results with respect to free speech and other uh, related issues. Um, Can you, um, can you give us an example of a sort of covert executive uh, independently of the, the, the three kinds of case that you wind up uh, discussing in the latter chapters of the book?
1: Sure. But why don't I back up a little bit just to give the whole, the whole enterprise a little bit more context. So um, there are debates, I first got interested in this when um, I was asked to teach a philosophy of language course at Wellesley, and I wanted to make it more interesting to students, so I wanted to find some applied issues. And I read a paper by Ray Langton, uh, Speech Acts and Unspeakable Acts. And um, (laughs) um, so... uh, there were legal scholars, uh, interested in arguing that, uh, certain kinds of speech were more harmful than U.S. law recognized. Critical race theorists had been arguing for quite some time that hate speech and racist speech, um, wasn't just causing harm, but that it constituted harm and it was discriminatory or, um, and Catherine McKinnon has argued that some kinds of pornography, uh, subordinate women or silence women. And violate women's right to free speech. And these claims about speech constituting harm were, for many, perplexing. Uh, one thing that Ray Langton did in that terrific paper was to, you sort of wheel in Austin and speech acts and say, "No, look, speech can be harm. It's not a category mistake. It's not a confusion." When uh, she gives an example of a, a, a legislator in a in apartheid uh, South Africa. Enacting a law that prohibited blacks from voting, and she says, "Look, this is subordinating speech. It enacts a law that uh, prevents uh, blacks from being able to vote, and that is a subordinating speech act." So she gave us a model of speech that subordinates, and she gave us a model of speech that constitutes harm. Uh, I think there was there were some challenges to that model. Uh, because the model uh, dealt with a standard executive. It required that the speaker have and be exercising authority. It required that the speaker be intending to enact the law or permissibility fact. It required that others recognize that that's what the speaker is doing or that that's what the speaker is intending to do. And it requires that the, that the, that the utterance somehow communicate the content of the law or the permissibility facts being enacted, but it seemed to me that it was Utterly unclear that any of those conditions are true of por- pornography, or it's not even clear who the speaker is with pornography, but it also with racist speech. I mean, I was very sympathetic to the idea that racist speech is harmful in ways that go beyond what the law recognized. And it seems to me right that it's enacting norms and constituting harm and uh, unjust hierarchy. Um, but the model of the standard exertive, uh, just had too many challenges. It also seemed to me that the standard exertive is a, is a communicative phenomenon where the, the speaker is intending to get something across and is recognized as trying to get that thing across. But I think that, um, pornography and, um, and racist speech work in a much sneakier way. And so this other model of how speech enacts norms I think, is a much better model for sneaky ways in which um, utterances can be harmful. And so we're removing the we're removing it from the speaker's intention and the speaker's uh, individualized authority, um, because what's doing the work is the is the broader social context of the gene norms operative in that social context. So I just think it's a better model for making good on the claim, which I think is right. That, um, racist speech, sexist speech, homophobic speech, um, is doing more harm than we realize. Um, so that's, that's why I think it matters to have this other, other model for how speech can enact norms and norms that are harmful. So I think examples of this, I mean, <laughs> there are tons of examples of this, I'm afraid, uh, in, uh, in today's, uh, public
0: debates. So why don't we, why don't we pick up there? Because the, um, uh, the, 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 the book then shifts once you set the groundwork in place and get your account of, um, these non-standard or these extra standard, uh, exercitives in the form of covert exercitives in place. Um, uh, you argue for some surprising results, some pr- surprising, I should say, moral and, and, and legal results. Um, so let's begin with your analysis of how um, a sexist uh, conversation between two people, uh, in the book you call them Steve and John, um, uh, can constitute oppression. Um, this was a, a really, really, I thought, fabulous uh, and, and very enlightening chapter. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So um, on, on my view, speech can be harm even without the speaker uh, intending to
0: um,
1: enact harm without the speaker even being aware of doing it. So I give an example of two guys in in an employee lounge, uh, one sort of bragging about sexual conquest to his friend and it being overheard by uh, a female coworker. And I argue that, with the conversation is something like you know, did you get lucky last night and it's like, mm. yeah I did I banged her and like oh does she have a, does she have a sister something yeah. like that right um, that's
0: how it went
1: yeah. and so uh, so I, I argue first that the um, I, I banged her or whatever um, that that changes you know and the next changes to the conversational score and so it's going to change you know which person is being talked about who, who her refers to et etc Um, So it's going to change uh, conversational permissibility, Um, and maybe it even uh, makes it conversationally permissible to say uh, degrading things about women or to sexualize women or women's parts or what have you. Um, But I argue that it's not just uh, changing conversational permissibility because this is a social interaction. What uh, John said also enacts uh, changes to the score for that social interaction. And uh, by saying something sexist, I think he triggers sort of social norms, G norms that are uh, that are sexist, and that enables him to enact many norms for that particular context that are uh, sexist. And I argue that it makes it uh, permissible not just in the conversation, but permissible in that social space to treat women. Uh, Less well to treat them as second-class citizens, uh, to um, to, uh, uh, to to sexualize women or objectify women. Maybe I mean how that would be cashed out might vary from case to case, but maybe it would encourage expecting women to look pleasing to men or defer to men or clean out the refrigerator or, uh, or, or wipe the counters of the communal kitchenette or. Um, but I, I'm arguing that even though John wasn't intending to do any of these things uh, because he said it in a in a social interaction that's governed by norms, and some of the norms, unfortunately, some of the social norms we have currently are ones that uh, sort of systematically disadvantage women relative to men um, because of the sort of the oomph of those norms, his offhand comment was able to do more than he is a. Particular individual could do. And he changed the normative facts uh, for that workplace by saying what he said. So, roughly, the picture is that um, when we say things, we're contributing to conversations, but also to social interactions. And we enact many norms for the social interaction. And because there are broader social norms that govern things, the actions of an individual can have more power than the individual has because of the norms operative in the broader culture. So roughly the sort of sexist, the sexism in the broader culture was sort of brought to bear in that workplace because of what he said, and in part uh, because of how what he said was received by his interlocutor, because had someone objected, I think the score would have been changed back at least in some respects. And the, you know, the longer term, Consequences of the
0: remark would have been different. I see. So, am I right to think, though, that um, uh, I guess that this is um, pretty close to one of the um, uh, one of the lines of, of, of pushback that you consider in that chapter? Um, so, the, the, the that there is a, um, a, a, a more um, broadly dispersed cultural norm that is sexist is part of what enables, uh, in this case, the speaker to, um, uh, I don't know what the right word here is. I, I know that some philosophers in talking about this use the word license. I'm just going to use it and try not to have it freighted with anything, sort of license the importing of those broader norms into this particular space. It sort of gives the the interlocutor um, a kind of warrant for picking up on those broader social norms and, and recognizing them as operative uh, in this workplace uh, uh, context. Um, uh, you want to, I, I take it, agree with that, but say then that there's a, there's more because it's actually uh, the individual now has a, is, is has, has a power. Uh, uh, it's not just sort of letting something in, it's actually performing uh, uh, some act—it's it's, it's by way of some power that he has in virtue of those norms. Am I getting this right?
1: Yeah. yeah. So some people were worried that if—if if you think there are these sexist norms in the broader culture, then in what sense is—Steve? Uh, in what sense is the, the speaker actually enacting norms? Um, so that's one one objection. Um, but I think it's—I it's, think it's misguided. Not that that was your objection. It wasn't. Um, I think that's misguided because. Um, let's back up. To be oppressed is to be disadvantaged because of your group membership in a social context where uh, members of your group are sort of structurally disadvantaged. All right And here in this chapter, I'm interested in oppression. Um, um, think about uh, think about uh, the hanging of a whites only sign um, in the south uh, uh back in the day. there certainly were social norms that disadvantaged uh, Black Americans at the time. And that might explain why the proprietor felt entitled to hang the whites only sign. Um, But it's still the case that the hanging of that sign enacted a restaurant policy for that restaurant. So it's still discriminatory, even though there was a social context with lots and lots of discrimination, right? So what I'm saying in the workplace example, yeah, there are broader sexist norms. There are also broader egalitarian norms. But what that utterance does is enact norms for that particular social interaction in that particular space that are sexist rather than egalitarian. Does that make sense? And the fact that there are broader sexist norms doesn't mean he didn't manage to enact sex. Sexist norms in that micro context. It's what enabled him to do that in that micro context because those are the norms governing the norm governing practice to which he contributed, um, but he enacted them all the
0: same. Got it. Got it. No, that's very helpful. Um, can we turn to the analysis of pornography? Would that be okay? Yeah. So um, uh, after taking up this um, this concern and uh, this giving this analysis of Sort of oppressive uh, conversations in a workplace, um, you turn to uh, pornography, um, and here you take issue with the certain alternative analyses, which claims um, uh, that some pornography harms by subordinating and silence wa- silencing women. It's not that latter part. You, you're willing. You 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 want to uh, uphold the idea that some pornography subordinates and silences women. It's the account by which. That subordinating and silencing occurs that you take issue with, Um, and I I take it it's you know part of uh, part of the the critical target here is the Ray Langton view, which does draw um, pretty heavily on these what what you're calling the standard exertive view. So can you tell us a little bit about how um, the covert exertive account that you favor uh, gives us a better analysis uh, than the standard exertive account of the way in which pornography both subordinates and silences women or some pornography does at least.
1: Sure. And I think Bray Langton's view has changed some, uh, in recent years. So she's moving away from uh, an authoritative model of speech, but, um, yeah, her paper, uh, uh, inspired lots of people and, uh, terrific. Uh, but I, but I, in the end, I think, I think that the way that pornography uh, does what it does is a lot less, uh, Conscious and explicit than um, a standard exertive model requires. So, with a standard exertive, the speaker is an authoritative speaker and the speaker is exercising their authority. Uh, So, suppose um, I'm setting the bedtime for my kids and I say, you know, from now on, or or maybe I should give an example of subordination. Suppose uh, the boss says, um, you know, Uh, women are not allowed to uh, work overtime, and that that uh, enacts a policy that uh, uh, prevents women from uh, being able to earn extra income by working overtime. Um, In that case, the the speaker uh, uh, has authority to do that, and um, he's exercising that authority on that occasion. It's not clear that Pornography. You understand pornography as a as the pornography industry, or for understanding a particular piece of pornography on a particular occasion. Not, first of all, it's not clear how to understand pornography as a speech act. So that's why I move away from talking about pornography and talking about actions involving pornography. Um, but I mean, one problem that the standard exhortative model has is you know, who is the speaker of pornography? Is there supposed to be one speaker for all of pornography or all of the pornography that is of interest to feminists, like the harmful kind or the inegalitarian kind? Or are we talking about a particular piece of pornography being showed or viewed or consumed? or it's not, not clear one who the speaker is. And two, it's not clear that pornography is properly understood as authoritative speech, because that would require that the speaker have and be exercising authority. The standard executive model also requires that the speaker is intending to enact permissibility facts that subordinate. Most people shorthand that to the speaker is intending to subordinate. I think that's a mistake. I think you should separate the intention to enact the permissibility fact from the, the, the nature of the permissibility fact. So uh, I might intend to enact a law that prevents Certain people from voting, but not think that I'm oppressing anyone because I think it's just how things should be. But I'm still oppressing someone if I, uh, if you know, let's say that um, redheads are systematically disadvantaged in my kingdom, and I, I think that redheads are genetically inferior, and so I'm protecting them from themselves by preventing them from being able to vote, uh, and I enact a law that prevents redheads from voting. I'm not intending to oppress. Oppress redheads, I'm intending to protect the all, all beloved members of my kingdom, uh, but I'm nevertheless, I think, oppressing because I'm enacting a law that, in fact, oppresses. So I want to distinguish the intending to enact the permissibility fact from, you know, the harmful nature of the permissibility fact because they can come apart. But anyway, back to the standard exorcistive. On the standard exorcistive, either pornography has to intend to subordinate women or it has to intend to enact permissibility facts that, in fact, subordinate women. And I, I don't think that the, the aim of pornography of pornographers is to enact permissibility <laughs> facts or to subordinate women. So that's another challenge to the standard approach, as well as how it's taken. Uh, speech acts work because the hearer recognizes what the speaker's trying to do. Um, that's how we communicate. Um, and if we use a standard executive as a model for how pornography subordinates, then it should be received as subordinating or, you know, recognized as a subordinating act. And I don't think it is uh, generally. I mean, certainly some, uh, some uh, interpreters of pornography regarded as harmful to women and subordinating of women, but not in general. Uh, so that's another challenge for the standard exhaustive approach. And finally, with the standard exhaustive, the speaker communicates uh, the content of the permissibility fact being enacted. So, um, when I said redheads are not permitted to vote, I said, I said the content of the permissibility fact being enacted. But it's not clear that pornography is is doing that. It's not saying, you know, women are hereby subordinated. So, all of those things, and especially those things all taken together, I think, you know, really undermine the view that, um, pornography is doing what it's doing the way speech acts do, or at least the way standard exorcists do, because the standard exercitives is pretty upfront what's going on. <laughs> uh, the, uh, you know, and I think it's much sneakier than that. But the model of the covert exorcitives, uh, doesn't require that the speaker uh, have authority and be exercising it. It just requires that the speaker be contributing to a norm-governed practice. It doesn't require that the speaker be intending to subordinate or intending to enact disability facts. It just requires that this, you know that you're contributing to a practice. Uh, it doesn't require that other people interpret you as subordinating or constituting harm, um, and it doesn't require that the you know that you communicate the content of the permissibility factor enacting that comes from, you know, the score and the norms governing the practice, just as it did in the Finbar case. So I think it's a a better model of how um, pornography and other kinds of speech can sort of unwittingly, inadvertently uh, enact norms and harmful ones, depending on uh,
0: social context. Right, right. Fantastic. Um, so let's turn to the, um, to a case in which it does look like there's, um, uh, nothing covert about at least the speaker intention. Um, in chapter seven, um, uh, the book takes up a, um, or is sort of hate speech, particularly racist speech. Um, and the case that you look at there is, um, a, what I guess we can say is a sadly ordinary, uh, uh, case of, um, uh, uh, uh an older white gentleman, uh, older white man um,
1: uh, can you just loosely?
0: uh yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, an older, an old white guy, uh, um, uh, you know, saying something racist, uh, to a particular person, uh, on a bus. Um, um, so your view entails that um standard and i would suppose also familiar free speech defenses of that kind of uh speaking um uh, uh are incorrect that is that you think that um they're uh, on your account it's it's clearer that racist speech in public places uh, perhaps especially when directed at some particular uh uh person uh is actionable now you leave open the question of what the enforcement mechanism is and what the actions that are uh, what the actionability uh, comes to. Um, can you tell us so about how the, the how the view um, makes that kind of thought um, uh, available to us
1: sure so um as 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 you alluded to the the standard uh, way of thinking, at least in the United States of uh, racist speech is that it's you know yeah, it's harmful. Yeah, it makes people uncomfortable, but uh, it's just a price we pay for commitment to free speech. And I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong in so many ways. Uh, The kind of argument that I offer in that chapter, I call it a parody argument. And what I do is I I point to examples of speech that are clearly actionable. uh, And um, I identify what justifies the actionability of that class of speech. And then I argue using the covert exertative that places speech in public places sometimes does the exact same thing. So consider uh, uh, a CEO of a company who enacts a discriminatory hiring policy by saying, from now on, we're not gonna hire anyone. As you pointed out, by the way, your introduction is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it was so clear, like, yeah, he got the book, he got it. Um, <laughs> so when the CEO enacts a discriminatory hiring policy, um, uh, that utterance, in the light, in the in the eyes of even American law, is an act of discrimination. It's not just that the ensuing practice would would be discriminatory, but enacting that discriminatory policy is itself actionable, and it is discrimination. So, because the CEO enacts a policy that prescribes a discriminatory practice, discriminatory in the legal sense of discriminatory, the utterance itself is actionable. So you're right to distinguish between the harm enacted by the CEO's utterance, and then the the downstream causal effects of enacting that policy and the discriminatory practice that is prescribed by that policy. So um, the CEO's utterance is actionable because it enacts discriminatory norms in a place where anti-discrimination law uh, applies. And so I argue that saying something racist on the bus does the same thing. I call it a parody argument. So when when the white guy says the racist thing on the bus, the, the racist guy is adding to a conversation, changing the norms of the conversation, blah, blah, blah. But he's also contributing to the social interaction on that bus and enacting, I think, racially hostile norms. And I also build into the case that other people seem receptive to what the old man says and, you know, ladies pull their pocketbooks closer to them or what have you, just just try to build in, you know, enough so that it seems uh, not that controversial that, there are racist norms enacted as a result of him saying what he said and others responding the way that they do. And so I argue that, um, his utterance enacts, uh, norms on that public bus, many norms, uh, that are, uh, discriminatory because they deny, uh, the African-American man equal access to the bus. So, um, in the same way that the CEO's utterance is actionable because it enacts a discriminatory hiring policy, the racist man's utterance is actionable because it too enacts a discriminatory norm in a public place, which is a place uh, governed by anti-discrimination law, is discriminatory because it's a hostile environment. It denies equal access to uh, to the African-American man on the bus. So, um, you know, uh, uh, a public accommodation uh, doesn't need to deny access altogether to be discriminatory. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're not able to enjoy the restaurant because uh, of racist things being said, then a case can be made that it's a hostile environment and it's unequal access and thus discriminatory. So I disagree with the view that uh, racist speech and sexist speech is just something we need to put up with. I think that if, women uh shouldn't have to put up with uh inappropriate comments and sexist jokes and crap in the workplace, and I think we should not then I think that people of color shouldn't have to put up with that on public buses or in restaurants or I think it's um I'm just extending anti discrimination law uh in a way consistent with the way it's already applied even in the u s so although it might seem Shocking and radical that this wacko liberal philosophy professor says you shouldn't say racist things in public. Um, I'm actually uh, I'm working within the American system and and um, looking at how uh, how we do treat certain categories of speech now. And I'm saying, look, what we haven't noticed is that more speech than we realize does the very same thing, and so should be treated the very same way.
0: Right, right. Can I sort of um, get your thought about a, a slightly different kind of case? Um, uh, so, you know, it's, it's it's. I don't work, you know, I'm a political philosopher, but I work on, I don't work on free speech uh, um, professionally. But, um, you know, one of the things that uh, your view is particularly in this chapter got me thinking, um, and I think that the thoughts are helpful, um, is that um, the um, y- your concept of the the sort of covert exersative helps me to make sense of why um uh the more strict uh speech restrictions in germany don't strike me <laughs> as grave violations of individual liberty <laughs> um so it looks as if um
1: uh, are, you, are you talking about Holocaust denial and
0: Nazi speech and that kind of thing where um, your account said, oh, I you know, now I can understand, you know, some intuitive sort of thought that I happen to have, which is well, that's perfectly consistent with justice, that Nazi speech is is illegal uh, in in certain otherwise free societies, um, because I guess um your account enables me to sort of piece this together in the way. Oh, I see that there's a there's a there's a, a set of background norms uh, that um, uh, are hopefully sort of uh, on the way out, but they're still somewhere in the in the cultural uh, vernacular, as it were. And um, speech of that kind in public places, um, you know, calls you know enacts those norms in in certain respects. It, Would you agree with, you know, am I on the right track here in thinking through this kind of case?
1: Yeah, I would distinguish, though, between uh, doing, saying those sorts of things in public and saying those sorts of things in private. Because on my view, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't, uh, the way I've, and my argument is kind of localized. I'm just trying to argue that uh, in public places that are governed by anti-discrimination law, I can make a case that it's just like stuff we already regulate and don't worry about at all. yeah, so definitely. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion about free speech and a lot of the free speech discussions. I think people think, look, if we have a principle of free speech, that means you can say whatever you want. Uh, and that's just not true. Uh, we regulate a ton of speech in the United States. Uh, we regulate insider trading and uh, criminal solicitation and uh, false advertising and defamation. And there's a ton of, you know, a, a offering a bribe, asking for a bribe, accepting a bribe, we regulate tons of speech. Um, but w- in the U.S., we are very reluctant to regulate speech that um, harms marginalized persons. And that really troubles me. The law does a better job at protecting the interests of the powerful people who <laughs> historically are responsible for enacting the law, um, but they're, they're, not, they're not consistent. And I think free speech law is really a great big mess. It's a mistake to think that if we have a fr- principle of free speech, that you can't regulate speech. We can, we do, we have to regulate speech. You can't allow people to say, Hey, I'll pay you $10,000 to kill my husband. Like, <laughs> you're doing, you know, once you take the actions into account, um, we're right to regulate. Uh, and, and I, and I think that it's, you know, sometimes people think that, you know, there's a conflict between the free speech rights, uh, uh, speakers, hate speakers, and the equality rights of those uh, who are harmed by the hate speakers. Uh, but I think, you know, even that conflict uh, doesn't take into account how the speech capacities of people harmed by the harmful speech are undermined by the harmful speech. And then we have a conflict within the free speech right itself. If hate speech undermines the communicative capacities of uh, uh, the people targeted by the hate speech, well, then we have free speech right conflicting with free speech rights. So for those theorists who think that the free speech right always trumps, we've got to take into consideration uh, an internal clash uh within uh the free speech liberty right. So no, I think this phenomenon is all over the place. And we should be aware of it.
0: Well um Mary Kate, you've been very, very generous with your time and I wanna you know thank you for uh for talking with me about your book. Um uh, so I know it's a it's a cruel or odd question to ask somebody who's just finished a, a fabulous book. Um, what's your next project?
1: Um, so Ishani Maitra, who's a philosopher at the University of Michigan, and I are co-authoring a textbook in uh, Applied Philosophy of Language it's called Words in Action. And I'm really excited about it. It's very fun. Uh, we have about 13 chapters. And basically, the idea is that in the last 20 years or so, there's been a an explosion of work in these sorts of issues using the tools of analytic philosophy of language to think about uh, real-world issues, issues in language and law, um, issues of social justice. There's been work on generics, uh, work on slurs, how jokes work, um, free speech debates about pornography and hate speech. So, and the textbooks out there don't cover these topics at all. So we thought, one, it would be good to have a textbook that covered um, these uh, exciting new uh, fields, subfields in philosophy of language, and we also think that it's a better way to teach philosophy of language uh, if you start with Frege. By the time the students understand logic enough to understand how it all works and you know what ruffles up to with quantification, it's pretty technical puzzles. And um, but if you start with Ray Langton and Austin and Grice on implicature and sneaky ways you can put people down and people, the students get pretty jazzed straight off. So I think this textbook would invite students in to philosophy of language and you get pretty quickly, you get into some pretty technical issues about, you know, the nature of communication and what's a presupposition versus what's an implicature and so on. So you can teach a lot of the main areas in philosophy of language by starting with problems in real life and in the social world.
0: Well, so. that sounds that sounds fantastic. And, you know, um, I, I take it I'm not the only person uh, who um, will confess that uh, there are ma- many paragraphs in undenoting that I still do not understand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't
1: get the formalism, but... Uh, but it's such a smart move. It's so smart, but it I mean by the time the students have the tools they need to understand it, it's you know it's uh it's a challenge i think to to teach blasfia language the traditional way.
0: I think that's right. But, um, well, that sounds fabulous. I'll keep an eye out for that uh, and um uh, I want to thank you uh, today though uh for your thank time. You. Uh, it's been great to talk to you um and uh, thank you listeners uh for joining us uh, today. Uh, for our discussion of Mary Kate McGowan's new book, which is titled Just Words on Speech and Hidden Harm. It's uh, newly published uh, by Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.